0: And welcome to part four of my jazz series, a light attempt to introduce you to some jazz you might not have heard, and a cursory chronological summary of jazz from its beginnings through progressive jazz post-bebop in the late 60s the format for this show will be a little bit different than the previous shows because i'm going to do a lot of reading uh, much of it from my own writing and i'll warn you right now that there will be a part five because this will just cover uh, bebop and begin with some catch-up some people i missed who really need to be mentioned and uh, some examples played of their great musicianship so there will be a part five And that will end the series, I think. (laughs) And I want to say thank you for the comments I'm getting from some people who actually listen to this, and I think they enjoy it. So uh, keep those cards and letters coming, at least those uh, Facebook Messenger messages. And it really does my old heart good here to uh, know that someone's listening and enjoying and I think learning some stuff. I'll tell you what, I'm learning all kinds of things with this. When I taught high school, a teacher in the lounge one time said, if I want to learn something, I teach it. Well, that's certainly true here. The research I'm doing and and music I've never heard by people I might have heard of, but uh, was not too familiar with their playing, has enriched my uh, musical knowledge tenfold. And I hope you'll enjoy this show as much as the last few. A few years ago, I wrote uh, an article on jazz, uh, my impressions and some stories from my childhood. And I think you'll enjoy listening to some of it. And as background music, I'm going to play something that is not in this period, the bebop period. But I mentioned Blue and Green from Miles Davis' album, Kind of Blue, which, by the way, is the best-selling jazz album of all time. So this is my article called simply Jazz. Referred to by the uninitiated as jazz music, as if jazz falls into a category like march music. Music you can march to music you can jazz to, or that the form is so generic that jazz can be used as an adjective like the words pretty or loud or exciting like jazzy. No folks, it's just jazz. By the way, jazz, the word, is cited by the American dialect society as the word of the 20th century. Now you need to know that my talking about jazz is like a fish talking about water. As I said, it's difficult to be objective about anything view being a product of the way we are but hey as buzz said to jim and rebel without a cause you gotta do something so one of my earliest memories is a group of dad's friends in their early 20s standing around the driveway with me in the twilight of a cold winter night the car radio was playing jazz and they were into it someone asked hey mike do you like bebop or jingle bells better remember this to a seven-year-old Dig it. These guys in the throes of current asking a seven-year-old a question such as this. My answer? Jingle bells. And this made them laugh. I remember getting with a joke that I grew up under within the framework of improvisation and blues chords and I was still stuck, perhaps holding on to with uh, both hands, a mainstream Christmas carol. You see, my childhood can be described in the musical sense as living under the tyranny of taste. Want another one? A few years later, as I sat before our 17-inch television, wrapped up in Howdy duty, I noticed my father standing behind me. This is what my father said. If you're still watching this when you're 12 years old, I'm going to have you committed. Yes, true, dad, committable, crazy himself, in a life groove so deep that he never left it to his dying week, said this, though I discerned some finger impressions in the sides of the channel. Like the shortly before his death, when he could get into the flat tone of Miles Davis, even without that nice vibrato, tone, Dad taught me to use it as a benchmark. And I said to him, I thought you didn't like that. And he said, I've changed. He said that smiling. Fingers bent on the rim of the channel, standing on tiptoes, peering. It was one of the coolest things he ever said to me. He had about a month to live, but he was perfectly alive as he spoke the words. This is just some of the background to set the stage for the crazy thinking necessary to breathe in, exhale, breathe, exhale the air so thick you can taste it like gin and feel waves syncopated with beats where you don't expect them as only jazz can produce. So put on Kind of Blue and revise the benchmark upward and write, so what? This is a plea for involvement, what I want more than anything sometimes. Somebody saying, hey man, dig this, that's missing from my life. It's kind of a naked passion that lovers feel and musicians feel when it works, and it works so well in jazz. Jazz is sometimes described as an urban art form. Why? Blue and green says it. In the country, beautiful and open to contemplation, sunny the colors, rainy the atmospheric perspective of fog shrouded rows of trees across the field, all yours, you, God, the cows, and that wandering mind own everything, everything the eye sends your way. The city is different, alone and a million people, the puddle-soaked street reflecting building shapes and street lights, cars for wind, neon strips for sun, always alien, always anonymous, only us. We are driven inward to contemplate our souls. Cities were built by existentialists to give the masses of humanity a way to find God. On the street we know this instinctively and there's a melancholy inherent in that knowledge. We look inside, that's where the jazz is. We go so deep that we touch our souls and we improvise whatever it takes to give form to what we find there. We listen and are suddenly given permission to expose our love. Looking inward reveals an unabashed self free to express our joy and the beautiful light of that now moment of jazz immersion. As I said, there will be some catch-up here, and I want to cover four musicians in this uh, segment. Uh, early Chuck Webb from the... Uh, well, in 1930 through, I think he died in 39, uh, Count Basie, whose contribution to <laughs> people saying he's the greatest band of all time needs to be emphasized, and two of my favorite trumpet players, Roy Eldridge and Buck Clayton, they were dads too. First, Chuck Webb. Reading. When an infant, he fell down some stair steps in his family's home, crushing several vertebrae and requiring surgery, from which he never regained full mobility. The injury progressed to tuberculosis of the spine, leaving him with a short stature and a badly deformed spine, which caused him to appear hunchbacked. The idea of playing an instrument was suggested by his doctor to loosen up his bones. He supported himself as a newspaper boy to save enough money to buy drums and first play professionally at age 11. Downbeat Magazine, in 1937, titled an article, The Rise of a Crippled Genius. He was a great drummer and had a great band. In fact, he's credited along with uh, Fletcher Henderson and later Benny Goodman as giving rise to the swing era itself. gotta say that swings. I think that was probably recorded in the mid-30s. There was a thing back in the 30s, uh, a battle of the bands, and he went into one with Benny Goodman's band, who went uptown in Harlem and played against him, and Chick Webb's band was declared the winner, for whatever that's worth. Gene Krupa was really impressed by him, and I think he bowed bowed to the band and to Chick Webb. In the late 30s, uh, promoter John Hammond, who was tired of listening to stayed and true and almost cliched Benny Goodman arrangements and tunes, went out to his car and he found this kind of experimental station and he listened to it and was wowed. And what he heard was Count Basie's band. And uh, after hearing Basie on the radio, he went to Kansas City almost immediately to check him out and brought him back to uh, New York for uh, some recording. And probably what wowed him was the, uh, the rhythm section which included a very strong bass and the subtle drums, but there and a the guitar. And when you listen to Basie, one thing you'll notice is the very strong bass, which provides a felt beat. You can hear the rhythm of the bass, but you feel the beat. Basie played piano and led from the uh, from his piano, and he added very few notes, but precise notes and exactly where they should be and it added to the whole rhythmic effect. sounds like a later recording. He started in the the, uh, 30s, but that's uh, the recording techniques there. Indicate it's probably from the 40s, late 40s. And that was One O'Clock Jump. And the story I read was that he did something in the piano where they were goofing around with with melodies. And they liked this one. And they they asked basically, what do we call it? And he looked up at the clock, and it was One O'Clock. So let's call it the One O'Clock Jump. Okay, that's the story. In that uh, 1936 recording that uh, Hammond produced was also tenor man Lester Young. There's a song called Lester Leaps In. I'm not going to play part of it, but uh, I just thought I'd mention it. What I am going to play is Lady Be Good. I'm going to play the full recording. I mean, I played Ellington's 14-minute diminuendo and crescendo in blue. I can do the same for Basie, right? (laughs) pretty standard bassy and a big dose of Lester Young and you could certainly hear the uh, the rhythm the guitar and the bass that kind of drove the whole beat feel great 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 band everybody says so nobody says it's not the best but (laughs) I still prefer Ellington just because it's messy and not so precise and he does things that other bands didn't do duke ellington went his own path no matter what was going on on the outside jazz world he did his own thing and he could because he's a great composer great arranger great piano player and his musicians were fantastic and he just took them in a direction whatever direction he wanted to but basically still reigned supreme oh and a special thanks to me for not including stomping at the Woodside." everybody's uh you know that's Basie, right? It's almost his theme song. Maybe it was his theme song. Okay, we have time. <laughs> time. That's funny because this will go on forever. Uh, time for the two trumpet players I want to feature, Buck Clayton and Roy Eldridge. I'm just going to play a bit of each one to show them off and then go on finally into what the program is about, bebop. Okay, Roy Eldridge played with a whole bunch of groups. He's kind of, He kind of freelanced. He played with Gene Krupa, Benny Goodman, uh, had his own band, he was with Fletcher Henderson for a while, and in 1936 moved to Chicago, where he started his band. This is interesting, too. In 1938, he quit playing, fed up with the racism in the industry, and studied radio engineering for a year. And he got back into music in 1939. And he headed in a new direction, away from Louis Armstrong's kind of lyrical style to a much wilder style. Not quite bebop, but indicative of musicians trying to establish a style Away from the, by then, pretty standard, trite, kind of cliched swing style, which we'll talk about again in Glenn Miller's public-pleasing business performances, with some comments by none other than Artie Shaw. I really hate to stop that, but uh, there is one final quote I'd like to read. Roy Eldridge's combative approach, chance-taking style, and strong musicianship were an inspiration and an influence to the next musical generation, most notably Dizzy Gillespie. Although he sometimes pushed himself farther than he could go, Eldridge never played a dull solo. And now into Buck Clayton. Buck Clayton worked with Count Basie in the late 30s all the way through 1943 when he was drafted and spent the next few years arranging for uh, Count Basie and Benny Goodman and others. He played with various groups in Europe and the U.S. And in 1950, an Englishman coined the uh, term mainstream uh, to describe musicians who were kind of post-swing and a lot more modern. They were between the old school and the new school, and Buck Clayton fell in that category. He underwent uh, lip surgery in 1969 and had to give up playing for a few years, but 1977 resumed, and he played a little bit and then ended up teaching at Hunter College. So let's hear some Buck Clayton. The tune is I Want a Little Girl and I'm going to do something here that I don't usually do. I'm going to fade out the piano player and then fade back into Clayton, just so you can hear more of him. i mm-hmm. you. Hearing players like Eldridge and Clayton and Louis Armstrong, you wonder how many other great trumpet players are around. Dad was really, really good on trumpet. Great, I don't know. I like to think so because he's my father. You know, just in Michigan, when uh, they did pickup bands for playing in bars and stuff around around Michigan, there were musicians all over the place. And I'm sure that there are musicians all over the country. We just never got a break, never went big, and are really fantastic musicians. Okay, before bebop, and necessarily introducing bebop, one more salvo at what swing had become in the form of big bands. The development of jazz, like any movement, goes through this kind of a maturity, and then stagnation, and finally a kind of dissolution, and it leads to new forms like bebop. When jazz reached the big band phase, most of the energy was pretty well sucked out of it. And, of course, a similar situation happened in rock in the, let's say, the, yeah, the late 70s and 80s. It just, you know, it became kind of a soundtrack for rave concerts and uh, parties. Um, by the mid-40s, the public face of jazz was non-offensive and totally acceptable by the adult community and it wasn't like, you know, kids' music anymore. It had become what, what Dad used to refer to as legitimate. It was danceable, and the sound of Tommy Dorsey and Glenn Miller. And this drove a lot of musicians to look for and experiment with a new kind of jazz that wasn't stayed and arranged and set and, to be truthful, geared to please the public to sell albums or records at the time. And this led to uh, kind of a bigger is better sound and the monstrosities of the late 50s and, and early 60s. Um, Sauter Finnegan, Billy May, Enoch Light, and a bunch of others. And this coincided, by the way, with the rise of uh, high-fidelity equipment, which showed off this cacophony of new sounds and big sounds and different sounds. And uh, people were, became more interested in the sound of the orchestra than the music. And I remember this. A friend of mine had a, a really good stereo, and, and uh, he'd, he'd play these, you know, these Sauter Fritigan, Billy May arrangements, and like this stereo, you know, you could hear on this side of the stereo, this coming out and this coming out. It was like the thing, the sound itself, became the focus of listening. And that energy that, that led to the rise of jazz in the 20s and the 30s had pretty well disappeared there was no experimentation, and everything was, like, neat and packaged, and the public loved it. And it was danceable. That's a big thing. Like Dick Clark, you know, back, I don't know if you remember the Dick Clark dance thing. In the afternoon, you know, what would you rate it? Well, i give it a, I like to listen to it, and, and you can dance to it. That was pretty much where big band music was in the middle 40s. And this led to a lot of musicians jumping ship and going off on their own. And these guys didn't care whether the public liked it or not. They played for themselves and each other. I'm going to play a short clip uh, by two commentators from the Ken Burns series. I don't know who the first one is. The second one's Artie Shaw. And this is proof that it's not just me being biased. Listen especially to Artie Shaw, the second uh, person you'll hear. A, B, C, D, E,
1: F, G, H, I got a
0: I think the importance of Glenn Miller was that he popularized swing music for a lot of people who couldn't even get with, you know, Goodman and Ellington. Uh, he made it very romantic. He created the sound uh, of that era that, that that a lot of people will always associated, people who were alive then, with that period. And it's not a negligible contribution. Certainly it's not creative in the traditional jazz sense, but it's a, it's a potent brew.
1: Dreaming. I
0: can hear you he had what you'd call a Republican band, so very straight-laced, in the middle of the road. And Miller was that kind of guy. He was a businessman. And he was sort of the Lawrence Welk of jazz. And that's one of the reasons he was so big. People could identify with what he did. They perceived what he was doing. Uh, but the biggest problem is band never made a mistake. And it's one of the things wrong, because if you don't ever make a mistake, you're not trying. You're not playing at the edge of your ability. You're playing safely, within limits. And you know what you can do, and it sounds, after a while, extremely boring. And what do you think of that? Another opinion. Extremely boring, and Glenn Miller was the Lawrence Welk of the era. i love that, of course. (laughs) Okay, finally, some bebop. We're at the halfway mark of the show. I might have to split this, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I might have to split this into two parts and go into some bebop people, the beginning through some bebop in the mid-40s, and then continue it next show. Wow. Let's start off with the first bebop recording made in 1944. It's not fully formed yet, but it did include Dizzy Gillespie, and Max Roach on drums, and Coleman Hawkins on uh, tenor sax. And this was happening precisely when Miller and Dorsey, two guys I love to pick on, were at the peak of their uh, popularity. This is called Woody and You. And please, please compare the energy of this with the (laughs) Song of India, uh, Tommy Dorsey, where it sounds like all the musicians had just died. February 16, 1944, Coleman Hawkins led a session including Dizzy Gillespie and Don Bias with a rhythm section consisting of Clyde Hart on piano, Oscar Pettiford on bass, and Max Roach on drums that recorded Woody and You, the first formal recording of bebop. This was just after a catastrophe, sort of. The American Federation of Musicians, saw radio as a threat because radio was playing recorded music. Okay, they couldn't attack the radio stations directly, so what they did was have the unions ban musicians from recording music. And this ridiculous nonsense lasted for two years until 1944, when the recording we just heard was made. Now, two things. First off, the musicians who were getting into this new style of music didn't really give a damn if anybody listened to them or not. They were playing it for themselves and, and enjoying it. And second, if they had wanted it to be heard, it couldn't be, not until 1944. I said in the first show that, about jazz that jazz wasn't created, it just evolved over decades. Bebop, on the other hand, was created um, by people like Charlie Parker and Coleman Hawkins and Dizzy Gillespie. There are events, and one of these was uh, Coleman Hawkins doing Body and Soul. He begins playing it in a, a standard way, but in the middle of the song, he improvises for three minutes, and this hadn't been done before. I'm going to play it, and what I'd like you to do is, you know the melody very well, if you don't, it, it, the melody's in the first part of the song, Try to follow the melody in Coleman Hawkins' solo. (laughs) ¶¶ probably follow the melody but boy does he stretch it. Now let's get radical. Uh, This brings in Charlie Parker who not single-handedly but was the major force in this new style of music. It involves the song the old standard that you probably know called Cherokee and I'm gonna play Charlie Barnett who made it famous first. Some of it. pretty sure you recognize that. It's pretty neat. I, I still like it. You know, it's, it's catchy and uh, um, good big band stuff, better than some other people I mentioned. Let's hear what Charlie Parker does with it. Now here is a version of Cherokee by Charlie Parker, which he called Coco. And this is where it really gets wild. And remember, you're listening to what Parker is basing on Cherokee. The story goes that, while reviewing the chord changes in the original song, Parker realized that even the most dissonant notes could be made to work within the structure of a chord. This discovery revolutionized his approach to solos, leading to his distinctive style of soloing that featured masterful displays of technical prowess and unique melodic ideas. He was recording it for Savoy Records. An abandoned first take was meant to be a standard recording of Cherokee, including the song's melody. However, this take was stopped during the first chorus. The second final take dropped the melody in favor of allowing Parker to solo for the majority of the song. While the song's high tempo and Parker's often dizzying solo can make it difficult for listeners to determine his musical direction, it becomes clear upon repeatedly listening to the song that Parker is not playing the random notes, but is actually integrating melodic ideas into a solo. Parker's legendary solo turned a last-second decision into one of the greatest songs to come out of the bebop era, and a true jazz classic. That's from an article from uh, Gettysburg College about the early history of uh, modern jazz. Okay, a confession. I was never into wild bebop, uh, the kind of solo you just heard with Charlie Parker, but the more I listen to it, the better I like it, and I'm beginning to understand it this from somebody who was raised with Benny Goodman and Artie Shaw and you know the big bands and so forth but it's no wonder that the dancing legitimate music loving public never quite got into this for one thing there's no way you can dance to it you just have to listen to it and it didn't fit in their staid comfortable music listening zone and that's why bebop never caught on with the general public it was it caught on in the sense of like it's a kind of a a funny wild really hip cool kind of music but people didn't really understand it and they stayed with legitimate music which devolved through the early 50s into rock and roll early rock and roll which was basically a combination of the uh, jazz structure and rhythm and blues without the great musicians playing in front and rock around the clock comes to mind immediately it's that uh, dot, 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 four one two three four kind of the, the jazz structure, but that's about it. Now a little academic explanation here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read something that I wrote as I understand what's going on with bebop, and then I'll try to explain it. In bebop, a tune acts as a framework that suggests musical ideas, a basic structure full of possibilities in the mind of the musician Rather than being an elastic form that pulls the musician back to its basic shape after whatever degree of tension he imposes, he's not embellishing the melody. He's creating music roughly guided by it. And at this point, if I were a musical scholar or even a practicing, skilled musician, I could talk about inverted chords, which is the uh, the coin of the realm of what Parker did, and is almost always talked about well I don't understand inverted chords what I do understand is taking a melody the basics of it the form of it and using that to create a new improvised music of course anytime anybody improvises they're creating new music but there is always a strong pull when somebody takes a course to stick pretty close to the melody and embellish it not so with bebop so here's a little melodic figure. What can I do with it? Anything you want. And that anything you want is what lost the public. They couldn't follow the tune, the song they're familiar with. What well, is possible, and the only way to, to listen to bop, bebop and understand it, is to listen to what the musician is creating and follow that. It's rewarding, often difficult, and if you have a recording, worth numerous listenings. I'm into classical music, always have been. My dad and I used to argue about jazz versus classical a lot. And this kind of reminds me of what I'm saying here of uh, listening to a new composer, writing new music. You follow what he's doing and go with it. And don't expect to be rewarded with familiarity. And musically, this is an across-the-board thing. It's true of rock, and it's even true of classical A conductor was uh, complaining one time that wherever he goes, the audience wants to hear the same old warhorses over and over. The 1812 Overture, WC's Prelude to the Afternoon of a Fawn, uh, Finlandia, and in rock. uh, Rock musicians, I've read over and over and heard in interviews, get so sick of playing the same things. But that's what the audience wants. They want to be this rewarded and warmed by what they're familiar with they want they want to they want to stay in their place of comfort well that's not the way to really enjoy music it's a way to enjoy your comfort zone but if you want to experience something new something that's exciting and something that will change your life you have to listen and listen and let go Does this mean that anything new and innovative is automatically good because it hasn't been heard before and you're supposed to try to enjoy it? No, a lot of times it isn't good, but you should be open to listening and not reject something because you can't pigeonhole it into one of your little musical categories that you know so well. Do I know what these guys are doing? Not really. Should I listen to it? Probably. I think you have to get into new music, which this is to me, gradually, listen to uh, hybrids, like the first recording I played of uh, Bird's Cherokee, and gradually get to know what the heck they're doing. Coltrane is like that. Early Coltrane, I can handle. The later stuff is... I don't know what he's doing, and I don't really enjoy it. So what I suggest with bebop is uh, listen to a lot of it, dismiss some of it, enjoy some of it, but uh, listen to enough of it that you have some idea of what's going on. And as I said, don't look for the tune. Listen to what they're creating. Bebop, like every other kind of music, every other style, uh, became commercialized, and uh, I'll play an example of that. The style was very influential. I mean, you still hear it in musicians today, just playing normal stuff, jazz musicians, just playing normal stuff. The influence was pervasive. I think a couple of things kind of killed bebop. Uh, The main one is that people didn't know what the heck was going on. They couldn't dance to it. It certainly wasn't something you could walk away humming. And the, the big band sound invaded bebop and commercialized it to the point where again just like happened with swing uh the energy was gone it sounds like there's energy because it's loud and forceful but it's not creative it's just loud and wow look don't you love this bebop sound here's an example of course has a written arrangement and it has the rhythmic structure the surprising ta-da ta-da you know, of, of, of bebop and the changes are bebop the horn sections it's the kind of stuff though that <laughs> Jazz Lab bands and their hip conductors uh, play and think they're really with it because they're playing something hip to me it's up there with big band jazz I mean it's, it's completely lost I mean where's Charlie Parker when you need him you know there's nothing going on here that, that's original, that's like exciting. It's supposed to be exciting because of the, the driving rhythm and the loudness and the horn sections, but it's not. There's just nothing there. And I can hardly wait to get to Miles Davis in the mid-50s. And at this point, I've got to play some more Charlie Parker to get the bad taste out of my mouth. This is beautiful. It's, uh, you came to me from out of nowhere. makes a good case for it's the musicians not the style that's cool which is why we can look across the spectrum of the history of of jazz and find good things everywhere because there's good musicians everywhere and if they play in a certain style okay well that's what you do you listen to that style you accept that that's the style they play in but you listen to the musicians or the the arrangement too because sometimes sometimes the arrangement itself is a creative effort on the part of somebody like Duke Ellington, who creates through both the musician's solos and his arrangements. Have I done bebop justice? Eh, probably not, uh, because... I like the sound. I like I like the sound of bebop too. The the style. I like it. I don't see it as in itself good any more than I, I can see Dixieland in itself as good. It's just a framework to play in to create in. So I'm going to close this, believe it or not, and make it wow. I'm going to go over I'm going to go over 60 minutes again. And uh, so I'll close. I close with something really cool. A promise of things to come. And I'll see you next time when we'll listen to uh, a lot of Miles Davis and some John Coltrane and other great musicians. See you then.